Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much. I want to thank you for the fact that you are worthy. I want to thank you for the fact that you, you stand victoriously over all creation over all things, Lord, and I just pray that as, as we sit down and, and we stare into this text and we are just in awe of who you are and what you're doing in this world, Lord, I just pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be motivated, that we would, we would strive together with you to accomplish your mission in this world. Thank you. Amen. So my name is LJ. I've, I've been here with my family, with, with Amy and Samuel Jackson. We've been a member of the church now for about a year and a half. Um, before that, we had spent about four years serving internationally in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and when we came back and we kind of landed after spending that time, uh, Redeemer is the church where we landed. Uh, and and I'm, I'm absolutely honored to now stand before you and, and have the opportunity to, to share, uh, out of the text of Revelation, to share some of, of our motivation, our drive for wanting to serve internationally. Um, and, and hopefully... Uh, and I realize that I'm kind of speaking to the choir here. I'm speaking to a church that loves mission. I'm, I'm speaking to a church that is full of many people that have more experience than I do internationally. And, and I realize that I'm not here to try to motivate a people to do something they're not willing to do. Uh, what I'm here is hopefully to be able to speak a message of encouragement that we would continue to be faithful in the tasks that we're already walking forward in. Um, and, and this is kind of what this month is about, is going back and revisiting the foundation of what 
mission is. Uh, and last week, Jamie just, just really nailed it, opening it up by, by reminding us out of Matthew 28 that mission is God's plan to reach the nation through people like us that are empowered through the Spirit. And that's such an amazing thing to realize, like this is what God is doing in the world, is he is redeeming the world to himself, and he is using the church as the means by which to do that, all right? And in this week, what I get to focus on is a little bit of why the church shouldn't just think about going, but we should keep within our vision the desire to go to the world, or more specifically, the desire to go there, to, to go to the nations, and next week, um, Spencer is actually going to come up, and he is going to speak on uh, why the church should constantly be focused on, on going here. Um, but that's not my sermon, so I'm not going to preach that. I'm going to talk about why we should go there, and I'm excited about that. Uh, in order to do that, we're actually going to be in the text of Revelation 5. And uh, before we start off in the text, I want to kind of hit some background information, because Revelation is an, uh, is an interesting text to kind of preach a mission sermon out of. Uh, Revelation in itself can be very divisive. Uh, it, when you get into the book of Revelation, uh, some people absolutely love it. Uh, some people love digging through all of the imagery and the symbolism, and some people read through it and think, this is terrifying, and I don't think I'm going to come back here again. <laughs> all right, And I acknowledge Revelation is a complicated book. Uh, Revelation is a complicated book to deal with, one, because Revelation uses like three different types of writing styles. All right, and for those of you that are kind of like literary nerds, uh, you're going to get into this, and, and I hope you do. Uh, one, Revelation is a, a letter. So it's written like a letter, and, and that's something we can all kind of grasp onto. We write letters to people sometimes. All right? We understand how they work. You know, it's, it's usually an intimate or personal communication. It, it has a clear message that is, is given from the sender to the receiver. But Revelation isn't just a letter. Revelation is also prophecy. And essentially what that means is there is a message specifically from God that has been given to John, the author of Revelation, that is intended to be communicated with the rest of the church. And prophecy, for the most part, is something that we're not really intimidated by. Because this idea of prophecy, God giving a message to the church, is pretty consistent with the rest of what we read in the Bible. I mean, so much of what we see in the Bible is a message that God has for us. But it's this last genre, it's the, it's the genre of apocalyptic literature that really kind of throws us off. All right, because apocalyptic literature in Revelation is not something that we see on a regular basis. It's definitely not a form of communication that we use today. All right, and there's a couple of things about apocalyptic literature that absolutely can entrap us. Like it, it can kind of get us to freeze in the moment of our study. And the first thing is, is apocalyptic literature, uh, it doesn't play fair with time. When we think about writing a letter or we think about communicating, oftentimes we communicate chronologically. We tell a story, and our story has a very clear beginning, middle, and end. Well, apocalyptic literature plays with time differently. It uses time not so much as a beginning, middle, and end, but sometimes it uses time to express a structure of communication that God is trying to communicate. So time isn't necessarily communicated as beginning, middle, and end, but it's communicated as the opening of the seven seals or the blowing of the seven trumpets, or, or the pouring out of the seven cups of wrath. And if you've ever read Revelation, and, and you've found yourself kind of lost in this moment of, I don't really know, like, where am I or when am I? 
I mean, sometimes you read Revelation, I'm like, is this something that's already happened? Is it happening now? Is it going to happen in the future? And it can feel very, very confusing. And I want you to know, if you've experienced that, welcome to the club. I mean, all of us that, that kind of dig into this book, when we get into the apocalyptic nature, we feel that way. Now, the other thing about apocalyptic literature that, uh, that can be confusing is the use of fantastic imagery. Now, imagery we understand. Scripture is full of imagery being used to express things. I'll give you a clear example in our text today. Um, Jesus as the Lamb of God. All throughout Scripture, the image of the Lamb of God is, is, is utilized, and we understand that. We've seen lambs. We can connect with a the lamb. They're cute, they're fuzzy, they're pure, they're innocent. If we've studied Scripture, we know the role of the lamb in Scripture. So when Jesus is described as the lamb of God, we can relate to that because we understand it. It, it, it speaks to us. But in apocalyptic literature, oftentimes that fantastic imagery goes beyond anything we can relate to. So here in the text, we have a lamb. We have a lamb that was slain. We have a lamb that was slain with seven horns and seven eyes, and all of a sudden that image that was accessible is elevated to the point that now we're talking about something we, we don't even understand anymore. And sometimes when we get into apocalyptic literature, we can get so wrapped up in these details. We can so get so wrapped up in what's vague about these texts that sometimes we'll just kind of run right over the clear message. And what I'm going to do today is, uh, one, for any of you that really love digging into the details of Revelation, uh, this is going to be a mildly disappointing message because I don't really have an answer to all these things. I, I don't have an explanation as to what the seven horns are, the seven eyes are. I definitely cannot explain the four beasts with, with six wings and eyes all over their body. Like, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But when I get into this text, there are a couple of points that I want to hit that are clear. And I think one thing that we need to understand, and hopefully this is encouraging for any of you that want to study Revelation, is the key to studying Revelation and understanding it well is firmly grasping on to the things that are spoken clearly and allowing the rest of the text to drive us in to those things that we can know for sure. So in Revelation 5 today that we've just read, there are three main points that I want us to pick up on and three main things that I think that we can clearly understand from this text. The very first point is this, that Jesus is victorious, that he is absolutely victorious. All right, now I want to put this within context because understanding Jesus is victorious makes more sense when we understand what's going on with the church during this time. So again, I told you Revelation is a letter uh, it's specifically a letter written from John. John, who is a prisoner, he has been exiled into an island, and he's been exiled specifically because he was teaching the Word of God. He was a minister of the gospel. So it is a man that is going through severe persecution, writing to a church that exists within a region in which they are oppressed where they are struggling to survive. They're struggling to maintain, maintain themselves within the Roman Empire. And even John, as he's writing the first couple of chapters of Revelation, he points out, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may know what's coming next. And in this vision in Revelation 5, he's called up into the throne room. So John gets this moment where he gets to stand before the throne of God, and he is up there specifically to receive a message 
of what's about to happen. And this is so important because in our context, sometimes we don't understand church in the same light. Because when we think about church in the United States, one, if we leave here, most of us are going to pass four or five more churches on our way to the house. And there's one point in Hendersonville, when you talk about the church, there is a church beside a church across the street from a church. When we talk about Christianity in the United States, we're talking about millions of people that are of like mind and and of like belief that have the freedom, that have the freedom to worship and have the freedom to share what we believe with, with the community around us. And it may not necessarily be a welcomed message, but we have that freedom to do so and to do so boldly. We have so much strength within Christianity in the United States that we've actually created this entire subculture of church shopping. Like the church is so prevalent that when we come to a new city, we actually kind of get to bounce around and figure out which one fits us the best. All right, we did it. I'm not judging. I don't know how we ended up here, but we, we did. Um, but here's what I want you to understand. When John is writing to the church the churches of Asia, when he's writing this letter to them, we're not talking about a massive movement that's taking a place. I mean, this is just a few decades after the Great Commission was given. A few decades ago, 12 men were given a message and told, with the Spirit, change the world. And those 12 men accomplished an unbelievable amount with the power of God, and now we have churches that are out as far as Asia. That when John is writing this book, there are churches that have made it all the way out into the Roman provinces of Asia. And this is something to be celebrated, but we have to keep in mind, this is a small, small number of Christians that are scattered throughout a region in the Roman Empire, in an empire where most people would not have even known that Christianity existed. And if they knew that Christians existed, they wanted them gone. They wanted them out. Because Christianity was causing a stir. It was messing up the social structure. The way civilization was working at that time, it wasn't that the Romans were opposed to religion. They worshipped many, many gods. They were even accepting of a lot of other religions from other faiths. But the fact of the matter was, when Christianity stood up in the face of the many gods and declared there is but one true God, it messed up their structure. And at that time... Rome was so powerful that the way that they dealt with any, any population that kind of disrupted the social order was simply destruction. Get them out. So let's understand kind of the situation of the church that's, that John is writing to is not a situation to where they feel powerful. It is a situation where they are a small group of people struggling to maintain their faith or maintain their faith in the face of what seemed like an insurmountable enemy. So when John writes Revelation, the very first image that he wants communicated back to the churches is that as impossible as your situation may seem, Jesus is on the throne. And it's so important that we grasp hold of this. When he's sitting in the throne room, look at what takes place in this interaction. He's sitting in in the throne room and he's watching God at the center and he's watching all of these beasts. Who knows what these beasts are? But they're worshiping the Lord. They're, They're around the throne. And God sits there with a scroll in his right hand 
And on this scroll is written something. And John knows that whatever it is that's written on this scroll is important for him to understand. And as he sits there, he realizes that there is not a person in heaven or in earth or under the earth that has the ability to read the scroll. The only hope of encouragement that John is looking for to bring back to the church and nobody can even look at it. And John begins to wail and weep and cry. John is in despair until the arrival of the Lamb, until the Lion of Judah, until the Root of David shows up. And he looks down and there is the Lamb that was slain that walks to the center of the throne room and he picks up the scroll and as he picks up the scroll, he declares to all around him that I am the victorious one, I am triumphant. So when we read Revelation we got to get past all of the confusion, and we have to remember at the end of the day, Revelation is a manifesto of triumph. It is a declaration of victory, so that when John writes to the churches, he's able to write back to the churches and say that as you suffer hardship, as you, as you suffer to maintain your faith, as you struggle to remember your first love, as you struggle and battle with sin, as the people around you ridicule you and mock you, as you lose your station in life, and as some of you in faithfulness to Christ lose your lives, please remember that Jesus is victorious. It is the central theme of everything that is in the book of Revelation, and it's what drives the church, is the victory in Jesus. Now, the next main point that I think is clear and I think that we can grasp onto is this. Not only is Jesus victorious, But Jesus' victory is worthy of worship from all creation. Looks what happens when the lamb that was slain takes hold of the scroll and he stands in the center of the throne room. And then all of a sudden we have this image where the 24 elders begin to worship, where the four beasts begin to worship, where the angels, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels begin to worship and they sing this new song and they sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every, every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. So the moment that the lamb stands in victory, everybody begins to worship. Why? Because Jesus' victory is worthy of worship. And there's a couple of things I want to point out. One, when we think about worship, we're not the only ones that are worshiping. All of the creative order falls at the feet of Christ. And that's so important. And in this worship, they're worshiping his victory. And what was his victory? That he was slain and that by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is where, when we talk about missions, this text is, is kind of what drives us into the theme for our, our month. This reminder that God deserves worship from every corner of the earth. That there is no location in this earth. That there is no people or sub-people group that exists in this earth that should not be represented around the throne room. That he absolutely deserves it. And when we think about missions, and, and missionaries, we're the worst at this, man. When we talk about missions, you know, so often the way that we motivate people by missions is by focusing on the people that we're trying to reach. And that's important. We should love the world because Christ loves the world. And if we don't love the world the way that Christ loves the world, then we've missed something. But our motivation for 
for missions is not that we reach the people. Our motivation for missions is that those people have the opportunity to worship around the throne. It's that our God is so good. Our God is so good that he deserves the worship from every single corner of this earth. So when, he's, when John is writing this letter to the churches in Revelation, all right, keep in mind that these churches are the churches of Asia. They're already the other people. Okay, this, this whole movement started among a Jewish population and is then beginning to spread. These people are already celebrating Christ in worship because they are the other people. They are the other nations. But then on top of these people are sitting in the middle of an empire to where they're looking around them and they're realizing we're not all that's left. There are others beyond us. And we know how good it is to worship such a great Savior and we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to do the same. And that brings me to my third point, and that is simply this, that the victory of Jesus should mobilize the church. It should mobilize them. And look at the way that it's described. It says, you were slain, your blood ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So this is so interesting. Not only did Christ's victory redeem people, not only did it ransom them out of, of slavery, ransom them from death itself, but the people that were redeemed were then made into a kingdom. They were made into priests. And this is such an important thing because it's a reminder to the church that you are not saved for the sake of just being saved. When we are saved, we are given a station, we're given a role, we're given a responsibility, and that responsibility is to continue to move the kingdom forward. That was Jamie's entire message yesterday, or last week, not yesterday, but I'm sure he would have preached it yesterday too. His entire message last week was built on this idea that the church was left with a task, and that task was to go advance the kingdom. And what we see here is we see in Revelation that when he, when he redeemed a people, he didn't just redeem them, but he redeemed them with purpose. And that purpose was for them to be a kingdom. That purpose was them to be priests. So kingdom, let's think about these in two terms, kingdom and priest. One, we are a kingdom that represents our king. All right? So when we go forward, we go forward with authority, not our own authority. We go forward with the authority of Christ himself. And Paul taught about this. Whenever Paul was, was teaching to the Corinthians, he explained to them, those of you that saved, you are now ambassadors for Christ. You are ministers of reconciliation. You go forward and you speak to the world and it is as if God is appealing to the world through you. Anybody that has been redeemed, we are servants to the kingdom. And it's so important that we take that role and responsibility very seriously. And the other side of that is not only are we servants to the kingdom, but we are priests to God. What is the role of the priest? Well, the priest, their responsibility is to intercede to God on behalf of man and to communicate to man on behalf of God. And that's such an important thing for us to remember. When this message was given back to the churches of Revelation, they were reminding not only were you ransomed, not only were you redeemed, but you were given responsibility within the kingdom. So go. 
Now, let's, let's put this within some historical context. Because we're left to believe that this message was very effective. Uh, one, the message of victory was very clearly communicated. And I love, if you, if you don't like to read Revelation, I encourage you to go back and read it again. Because it's amazing. There are dragons and there are beasts. And there's this awesome, awesome God that comes in on a horse with a sword and he's put together this huge army made up of believers and angels and they go to battle and the moment where you think this is going to be great, Jesus just speaks a word and in his speaking levels the battlefield. Like victory is guaranteed in the book of Revelation. And when this message is communicated back to the church, it obviously animated the church. It motivated the church. And the reason we know it motivated the church, because we are here worshiping today. Had the church not been motivated then, we would not be here today. Think about it. We are North America. We are a people. We are a nation. We are a language that didn't even exist when this letter was written to the churches of Asia. We weren't even an idea in the head of anyone apart from God when this motivation was sent to the churches. And we worship today because the church faithfully, empowered by the Spirit, moved forward then. And it's so important that we grasp this. It's so important that we really understand when we think about mission The central focus of our idea of mission is this, that every person represented in this world, every peoples, every nation, all of them should be represented around the throne room. And if there's a part, if there's any part in which we're able to acknowledge that there is room around the throne for more, then it's our responsibility to make sure that we get to them. Now, that's the message that was given to the churches, and I want to kind of draw some implications from this. So how are we to think about this? Like, what's our takeaways? And honestly, I I want to make something clear. I am the one that's here that gets to speak the message to the nations, all right? But I, I do want to say this. One of the takeaways that I do want to keep in mind is this. When we think about the mission of God, we have to keep in mind that it is God's mission. He initiated it. He started the whole thing, and the truth is, is he's going to complete it. He's, he's responsible for both initiating it and completing it. But what we know from this text is the means by which God completes his work on this earth is the church. So why should we constantly be thinking about the nations as a church? Because God's thinking about the nations. Why should we be concerned about going? Because God's plan for the world is that the church reach them. We are his plan A, there is no plan B. And we need to take that seriously. And I think we do. I I, I genuinely think that we do. The other thing that I want to clarify is this, is I realize that a church taking mission seriously does not mean that every member of this church is going to go overseas. It can't mean that. Because if we sent everybody overseas, well, well, then who would be here? (laughs) You know, we're a body. We're a body, and within that body, everybody has differing roles. But no matter what your role is within this church, the vision of the nations should be at the forefront of what we're doing simply because of the fact that that's what God desires. That's what God tasked us with doing. The next thing I want to point out is this, and I'm going to have to get there, and I've just got a couple minutes, but I can do this. When we think about missions, oftentimes people think, well, missions is for the mature believer. 
And this is what I really want to make clear. Mission is not for mature followers of Christ. Mission is how followers of Christ mature. It's so important for us to grasp that. When he's writing to this church and in, in these churches in Asia, these churches were not perfect churches. These churches were struggling. These churches, many of them were, were, were beginning to entertain sin in way, ways that they shouldn't be entertaining sin. John writes to one of the churches and said, man, you guys look alive on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. To another one he says, man, you guys have become lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. God's gonna vomit you out of his mouth. I mean, this is, this is harsh things that are being said to these churches. And yet this does not necessarily mean that the churches should not participate in the mission of God. What, what John is writing to them is saying, hey, this is where you are. Lean into the work of God. Why? Because leaning into the work of God is how we grow. The last thing I want to point out is this. Mission is intentional. This is my wife's point. She's smiling right now as I said it. I was not going to say this until she told me I should say this. But it is a, it's probably the best point of the entire sermon. So, <laughs> mission is intentional. And how do we know that mission is intentional? Because the center of our entire mission, Christ, is intentional. When we read, when we read in Philippians earlier, Philippians calls us to have this mind that was also in, in Christ, that even though... He was the very image of God. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped or something to hold on to, but instead he took on the image of man. He took on humanity and he came down even to the point of being a servant and was obedient, obedient to the point of death. There is nothing more intentional than the way that Christ reached out to us. There is nothing more intentional than the way that Christ established his plan of redemption for this world. And if we are followers of Christ... If we are followers of Christ, then we have to be intentional with the work the way that Christ was intentional with the work. So that means we cannot, church, we cannot sit here and hope for the neighborhoods to come to our doors. We've got to go. We cannot sit here and wait for the nations to come to our grounds. We have to go. And we have to go simply because of the fact that we follow, we follow the most intentional victorious savior that's ever been. I'm really, really thankful to have this opportunity to share with you guys. I'm going to pray. And Jamie's going to come up and, and take the mic away from me, hopefully. Lord, you are so good. And Lord, as we contemplate the way that you work, as we contemplate the things that you have done, it is just beyond all reason. And Lord, as we sit down and we realize what 12 men empowered by your spirit were able to accomplish for your kingdom, Lord. I just pray that as we sit here as a church and we meditate to what it looks like to boldly, boldly obey the spirit, to boldly step forward for your mission, Lord. I just pray that this text would, would serve as a great motivation, a great encouragement for us to continue on. Lord, we love you and praise you.